Hello and welcome to NC State's Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peek. Our power grid is in the news a lot lately. From how well it's handling, or not handling, our current needs, to keeping it secure and preparing for a future that will only see increased demand. We're speaking today with Jordan Kern, Assistant Professor of Forestry and Environmental Research here at NC State, about what our power grid can handle and what it needs in order to meet our future power needs. Welcome, Jordan. Thanks, Tracy. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. So let's start about talking about a power grid generally. Like, how are these things set up? How does a hydroelectric power plant end up turning the lights on in my house? Yeah. So there are a lot of different components of the grid, um, and we can kind of compartmentalize those into three different categories, right? So generation, which would be power plants like the hydroelectric dam, um, transmission, so high voltage transmission lines that are used to send electricity from where we generate it to roughly where it's consumed, and then lower voltage distribution lines. Um, and so in between power plants and the distribution lines, we have substations that have also been in the news recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where electricity is ramped up and down in voltage. And so we, we want to ramp it up in voltage right after it's produced and sent out over the transmission lines in order to minimize uh, losses of thermal losses of electricity on the transmission lines. And then we ramp it down in voltage and send it out over uh, lower voltage distribution lines. And then it's ramped down even one more time before it actually gets to your house. Okay. So that we don't like flip a switch and you explode. Got it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Excellent. So with all of that said, um, traditionally we get most of our power from things like burning coal or fossil fuels, or we have been. And mm-hmm. so we're trying now to transition to friendlier environmentally friendlier, like, energy. So how is the grid adapting? Are we able to put out the same amount of electricity using solar and wind and, you know, hydroelectric as we are just by burning fossil fuels? And what's the, if there is a mismatch, what does that look like? Yeah, so yes and no, right? So uh, in North Carolina, and I I don't know the exact numbers, um, but... We're now mostly natural gas, followed by nuclear, then coal, then solar, then hydro, and then some other stuff. And that mix looks a little bit different across the U.S., right? If you're in the Pacific Northwest, much more of your electricity is coming from hydropower because that's where a lot of really big hydroelectric dams are. And if you're in Iowa, there's a ton of your electricity that's coming from wind, right? Um, The difference between the more conventional power plants uh, that we've used historically, like coal-fired power plants, natural gas plants, and something newer, cleaner, friendlier like wind and solar, uh, is not necessarily like how much you can build. Because you could build, and when we talk about the size of power plants, we talk about the capacity in megawatts, so how much electricity they could produce at any given moment. So you could have like, a 1,000 megawatt solar farm, and you could have a 1,000 megawatt natural gas plant, but you're only going to be producing 1,000 megawatts of electricity from the solar farm when you have peak solar irradiance, when the sun is shining the most. And in all other parts of the day, it's going to be less than that. For a natural gas power plant, those are, are, or a coal-fired power plant, it's controllable, meaning 
humans, human operators are the ones who get to decide how much electricity is coming from that power plant. And so that's really the rub with renewables, right? Is that you can build as much as you want, but you don't often have, well, you don't always have control over how much electricity is actually coming out of a wind farm or a solar farm. And so you can build as many of those as you want, but you still need something else that can provide electricity during the times when you don't have wind, right? Or you don't have solar. Now, there are option different, a range of different options for how you do that, right? One option would be some sort of energy storage, like a battery. So you could uh, take some of that extra electricity that's being produced by solar farms and wind farms during the middle of the day that you might not need, and you could store it in a battery, and then you could keep it there until the sun goes down, right? And so then you're just shifting when you're able to use that electricity that's ultimately produced by solar farms. The other option would be to use something like a natural gas plant, right? And instead of using it all day long, you would only use it during the periods of the day when the sun is not shining or the wind is not blowing. Um, so it kind of depends on, there's a, there's a difference there in cost, right? Batteries right now tend to be a bit more expensive than like using a natural gas plant. Um, but the trade-off there is with emissions, right? One of those scenarios gets us a lot closer to like 100% renewable energy than the other one. Right. Okay. So with that said, it sounds like it comes down um, to cost in oh, terms of the shift, right? Everything always comes everything down to always cost. Comes yeah, down it's to cost. how much are we really willing to pay to get to 80% renewable energy versus 90 versus 95 or closer to 100. And the closer you get to 100, the costs really start to balloon. Okay. So just for my edification here, with um, natural gas, obviously that's cleaner in terms of emission than coal, right? Like, Or is it? The direct like emissions of carbon dioxide right, from burning natural gas at a power plant is lower than the direct carbon dioxide emissions from burning coal. But uh, methane, which is, car is natural gas, is itself a very potent uh, greenhouse gas, right? Mm -hmm. And there is some concern that increased use of natural gas across the U.S., in a variety of different applications, but especially electric power plants, is contributing to what we would refer to as fugitive methane emissions. So before the natural gas actually gets to the power plant, all these different pipelines it's going through in the process of getting it out of the ground is resulting in, in inadvertent releases of methane into the atmosphere. And we don't actually know with a lot of certainty how much is escaping. And if it's enough that's escaping, it kind of negates the, the, the benefits associated with switching from coal to natural gas. On paper, you're correct, right? Coal is worse than natural gas. Um, but there's, there's some concern that just having any natural gas or having or switching from coal to natural gas might not be as beneficial as we think. And then there's nuclear power. Yeah. Which I personally think is awesome because it's clean, but mm -hmm. obviously <laughs> I'd also grew up in the time of Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. So, yeah, you know, so what's the deal with like what's 
happening in terms of um, promoting nuclear power as an alternative? Well, I think there's a, a really important psychological barrier right there for people. They The perception of nuclear is that it's somehow unsafe, right? Now, there is a waste problem, right? So when we use nuclear fuel for long enough, it degrades in essentially its potency, right? And when nuclear fuel is spent, meaning it's a little less potent for getting energy out of, um, it's taken out of the reactor and then it needs to go someplace, right? And it's still pretty radioactive. It's just not radioactive enough to use in a power plant. And we have not really solved the solution of what to do with spent nuclear fuel. Right now, the solution is you store it on site at nuclear power plants. Um, the efforts within the U.S. at least to either develop programs for long-term storage of nuclear fuel, which would be like um, Yucca Mountain, where they are going to essentially, you know, burrow deep, deep into the earth and store spent nuclear fuel below the water table in like the middle of Nevada, didn't pan out. Um, and then efforts to recycle nuclear fuel in the United States have also not panned out. And so that is uh, definitely an issue. The the other part of it would be, and you brought up Chernobyl, right, and Three Mile Island, and then there's the Fukushima Fukushima Daiichi plant, right, in Japan that was affected by uh, an earthquake and a tsunami. Um, those are all examples of like you know, kind of worst case scenario. What happens if there's an accident at this power plant? And the power plants are incredibly complex, and failures do happen. The reality is that. If, you know, if you compared the operations of nuclear power plants to the operations of basically any other type of power plant, they fail way, way, way less often. And part of that's because of the increased scrutiny and safety regulations that are in place. So I agree. I'm a big fan. Um, it's, relatively speaking, incredibly safe and reliable. Zero emissions electricity once you build the power plant. The uphill battle for nuclear has been cost. Uh, the power plants we do have are really, really old. And so either we're going to need to retire them or pump more money into them to upgrade them and make sure they're operational over the next several decades. A lot of utilities don't want to do that. Um, or maybe they do want to do it, but the costs don't... Um, outweigh the benefit or the costs outweigh the benefits. And so they're, for economic reasons, deciding to retire nuclear power plants and building new nuclear power plants, partly because of the regulatory scrutiny, right? Because there's this psychological barrier and everybody wants to make sure that they're basically, you know, failure proof. Um, they're incredibly expensive to build when you compare, especially when you compare it to something like wind and solar, where the cost has just been going down and down and down and down for a variety of reasons. So it just looks like a, economically a less viable alternative. That's starting to change, right? There's a movement away from building these gigantic nuclear power plants that we used to build in like the 50s and 60s and 70s towards smaller modular reactors that are um, kind of bite-sized that would allow us to make smaller bets about where nuclear is feasible or where it's not without having to put all our eggs in one basket and building one gigantic nuclear power plant.
Okay. I had heard something about that. It sounded it sounded kind of interesting, like so, little mini nukes. Yeah, and I think those we're going to see those come online in the next ten years, and uh, I'm hopeful that it will start this sort of renaissance in nuclear power. I'm also hearing a lot in the news about you know rolling blackouts or disruptions in service, mm-hmm. and it just seems I would like to know why. Is uh-huh. it just is our demand increasing that much? Is it that we are not preparing for the population density that we end up having when we're building these plants? What's going on with that? So outages, interruptions in electricity service have uh, increased over the last five to six years, right, noticeably. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, my sense is that overwhelmingly that's due to these sort of one-off exposures to extreme weather, right? Weather events are becoming, in some cases, extreme weather is becoming more extreme and more frequent as a result of climate change. Um, And that can run the gamut, right? That can be more intense precipitation, more intense storms, um, higher temperatures in the summer, weirdly cold temperatures in the winter as a result of like a polar vortex and a wavy jet stream the the connection there between more frequent or severe polar vortex events and climate change is uncertain, but some people speculate that that could be what's behind it. Um, so I would say the first thing is weather, right? And the grid is old, right? It's ancient, right, in, in terms of infrastructure. And so anytime you have this sort of complicated uh, old system and you're hitting it with extreme events, it's going to break, right? Um now you brought and so that that is that would explain like damage to infrastructure causing outages, right? You brought up increased demand. And so that's a component of it as well, right? So like what happened over Christmas, right, in North Carolina when there were rolling blackouts was that demand was really, really high because it was so cold and more houses these days are using electric space heating in both residential and commercial properties. And so that means that, you know, traditionally utilities had to worry about the very hottest temperature of the year because that's when everybody would turn on their air conditioning. And now they also have to worry about the very coldest temperature of the year as well. So we had not, I don't know if it was record, but very high electricity demand over Christmas or Christmas Eve. And then stuff broke, right, unexpectedly. There were two failures, at least two failures at natural gas plants that Duke Energy operates um, that were unexpected. And so you had this um, combination of really high demand and less supply than they were expecting. And that's kind of similar, although less bad than what happened in Texas in 2021, which is a another example of really high demand caused by extreme temperatures coupled with physical failures at power plants that made it impossible for utilities to meet that higher demand. Um, In general, and I think that companies like Duke Energy and regulators at the state government, right, the Utility Commission, who often work kind of jointly to try to plan the future of the grid, um, do a good job at like predicting how population and uh, other dynamics are changing more slowly over time in North Carolina, and then responding to that by building new stuff, right? Building new power plants, building new transmission lines to help meet that demand. 
But it's kind of inevitable that you're going to get it a little wrong, right? Or that you'll just get surprised, right, by these extreme events where demand shoots up way higher than you thought it could. And if at the same time stuff breaks, that's rolling blackout. And rolling blackouts, I think, are it's different than a blackout that you would experience during after an extreme storm, right, where lines fall on, you know, trees fall on distribution lines. Rolling blackouts are instituted by utilities as a protective measure, right? So they say, this part of Charlotte's going to go without, you know, power for 30 minutes or an hour, and then this part, and then this part. And the effort there is to try to keep the demand for electricity perfectly in balance with supply, which they have to do every hour of every day of the year. Uh, so, and if they produce too much relative to demand or produce too little, then it can cause instability in the grid that can cause widespread damage. So it is their way of essentially making sure the grid is continues to operate smoothly, even though it results in people, you know, temporarily losing electricity service in order to prevent more prolonged outages and damages that, to the grid that could really severely interrupt service. Well, and you mentioned, you know, as climate changes and we have more and more of these extreme weather mm-hmm. events, um, are we going, are we planning ahead for that? And that also brings me to the question of EVs, mm-hmm. right? Everyone's trying to encourage people you're going to want to drive these electric vehicles. Yeah. Like in California, they're actually introducing legislation, you know, um, to get rid of fossil fuel yeah. vehicles. Um, they're also having rolling blackouts in California. So this is my yeah. question. You know, demand is only going to go up if we're all charging our cars yeah. in addition to using all this electricity. And the summers are warmer for longer, yeah. for example, yeah. or we're getting weird, you know, fluctuations in temperature where demand is off the charts one day and then not Mm -hmm. like what are we how are we doing it's 2023 i don't want to be in the dark like cooking my food over a fire i would like to have electricity i think it is uh, a difficult job for utilities and for regulators and system planners that they haven't really had to deal with much in the past i mean um the history of the power grid is mostly like this unmitigated success, right? Just awesome. Like low cost for consumers, relatively speaking, uh, very high reliability. Now, when you start thinking about environmental impacts, the score is a lot worse, right? But in our attempts to address that, right, we are electrifying vehicles, electrifying other parts of our energy usage, including in a residential and commercial space heating, um, and then incorporating sources of electricity generation that are harder to predict on an hourly and daily basis, like wind and solar. So we are what we're seeing is the growing pains of this, right? Now, utilities can... The, the sort of classic way to deal with uncertainty, right, is to build more stuff, right? You, redundancy is, is, is the, the best option for trying to minimize the occurrence of these failures. You just build more stuff and you're less likely to run out of electricity. But that imposes a cost on consumers, right? So what, you know, there's this question of if you if you build too much stuff, right, and you're increasing reliability from 99% to 99.95% or something like that, 
how much is that worth consumers, right? The average consumer. And that's a societal question that we kind of have to answer, right? Um, but it's, you know, companies like Duke Energy, uh, organizations like the State Utility Commission are trying to project forward, right? It's just, it's difficult because there's a lot of different possible scenarios that we could go down in terms of electrification of different sources of energy usage combined with, you know, different pathways that the climate could take. And we don't know which of those paths we're on, right? So it can be difficult to plan for those. And that brings me to sort of my final question, which is, in addition to all this other stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> climate change, we've got old infrastructure, we're trying to shift to less predictable sources of power. Right. Um, now we have weirdos shooting at transformer stations. Yeah. Like, what in the world, what is the risk to the grid as a whole from these things? Mm. Um, and what can be done to kind of, I guess, harden the infrastructure against human mischief in addition to Mother Nature? Yeah. So, I, you know, I think the risk for the grid associated with, you know, as you said, weirdos shooting up substations is relatively low, right, mm. for the wider grid. Right. Um. And I'll explain why. So if you have a, a substation, as I described earlier, is a place where electricity is either ramped up in voltage to be sent out to the wider grid, or it's the place where for your community, electricity would be coming in to your town or your city or your part of your town or your city from the wider grid. And in in most places, right, if somebody shot up, well, in, in larger urban areas, I'll say, if somebody shot up a substation, it's unlikely that that would significantly interrupt service because there would be other substations that could draw power and send electricity probably to your house on distribution lines. So there's redundancy, right? And if you live in a really rural area, uh, you, your town might just have one substation. And yeah, if, if somebody shot up your sub substation, you might be without power. But if it's a really rural area, it wouldn't affect that many people. Then there's this like unfortunate Goldilocks zone where you have pretty sizable towns that might have only a few substations and less redundancy where if somebody shot up the substation, you could be without power, like tens of thousands of people could be without power for a prolonged period of time. And so that can happen if somebody shoots up a substation or if it's damaged by flooding or other types of extreme weather or potentially if there, you know, if there are um, bad actors that are trying to hack the system, right, from a cybersecurity standpoint. Those are all issues. I think the cybersecurity issue is one that grid operators probably take more seriously than anything else. Um, and that can come from, you know, that could be an issue with, um, you know, people in other countries trying to destabilize parts of the U.S. grid on purpose, right? And it could be trying to, you know, physically damage uh, infrastructure or doing the thing where they essentially hold you financially hostage, etc. So I, th I think those are all risks that are probably growing, Um and, you know, I think that's a hard thing for utilities to plan around, again, because they probably have not been ex largely exposed to that in the past, and it's a new risk that they're having to wrap their heads around. Yeah, it will be interesting to see what happens in the future. Because yeah. you could just drive by a substation, so it's just out there, because who would think that you're going to mess with... They're it? everywhere, right? Yeah. They, they're where everyone lives, right? 
So. So there you go. Yeah. Well, thank you for being here today. This sure. has been a very interesting conversation. Thanks for having me. We've been speaking today with Jordan Kern, Assistant Professor of Forestry and Environmental Research here at NC State. This has been Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peake. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>